Hi, I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Before we start, I have a very exciting podcast update, or at least it's exciting for me. Since I've been super behind on transcripts for quite a while now, I've decided to start a Patreon so that I can hire somebody to help me. If you've been enjoying this show and you have a couple bucks to spare each month, I'd be so, so grateful if you'd sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash noendinsight. I don't have any fun perks set up yet, but once I figure that out, I'll make sure that early subscribers don't miss them. Plus, if you have any ideas for fun perks, please send them my way. Right now, I'm thinking about the usual stickers, pins, and t-shirts, but I'm hoping that I'll find a way to get a little bit more creative soon. Today, I'm talking to Olivia Spring about ME, Lyme disease, and navigating all levels of school with a chronic illness. Olivia is the editor of the forthcoming Sick Magazine, which you'll hear more about later during our conversation. Before we start, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. So, hello. I like hello. to start. <laughs> I like to start by asking people, how was your health as a kid? Um, so I was pretty healthy from what I remember. Um, I have horrible memory, so I don't really know. But I mean, I got sick when I was 11. So I do kind of still consider myself a kid, you know. Yeah, totally. Age. So before that, it was I was fine. I can't remember anything major I broke my arm a couple times yeah <laughs> normal kid stuff um but yeah it was I was generally healthy I was really athletic um really into school I really enjoyed school um I loved reading and writing um I would always ask my teachers for more homework like I was really <laughs> into school um and played soccer um very competitively since I was eight years old um yeah, and then just woke up one day when I was 11 and just felt very different, um, just yeah. like things were off in my body. Yeah, and um, I mean, obviously an 11-year-old will have probably different language than you might have for it now, but what did that feel like? How did you feel that day, it sounds like? I remember waking up feeling really exhausted and just kind of like groggy, I guess, just feeling like... Hmm, I don't feel like my usual self today that's up and ready to go to school and to have a normal day. Um, and I remember saying to my mom, I just didn't really feel that well. And so I just stayed home that day. Um, I think that was a Friday because then I remember the weekend on Sunday, I was, I think I was in Long Island or Queens for a soccer tournament. I think it was my brother's soccer tournament. And my mom was asking if, how I was, if I was feeling better for school tomorrow. And I just was kind of like, not, not really. No, I, I don't think I feel much better than I did. Like, it wasn't like I was in bed, it couldn't get to bed. It was just feeling Bro. like there was something up in my body. And I wasn't really, it wasn't clear. It wasn't, it's a cold or a flu or a specific symptom. It was just kind of like a general fatigue. Um, it did feel a bit like a cold. Mm -hmm. Like uh, a full body just, ache mm, sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it just didn't really go away. And I think I think Monday we had 
the New York like state standardized tests that day. And my mom said, you know, if you're not feeling 100%, don't go because you, you're not going to do well on the test. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I stayed home that day. And I think by then I was kind of feeling like, oh, I could maybe get to school, but I still didn't feel 100%. Yeah. Um, and then it just kind of carried on that way. Um, went to the to my pediatrician and he just said, you know, you just have a bug. Don't worry. Sure. Like, okay. Good, good news. <laughs> uh, I went back, you know, a few weeks later, still not feeling better. Did some tests, you know, you're fine. It's just a bug. Drink some water. <laughs> yeah. Do you know now what they might have been looking for? Just like, I assume any 11 year old that shows up with vaguely cold and flu like symptoms, mm-hmm. they're probably just checking for like typical viruses or whatever yeah the only thing I remember them testing for is mono yeah and thinking when they said that and my mom thinking it probably is mono it sounds like that's what you have Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember people at school when I didn't know what I had and I was going home early a lot of the time spending a lot of time in the office and people would just when I didn't know what I had they would just say oh she has mono like she just needs to go home and it'll be gone in a few weeks and it was really difficult that time to not know what I had and to have people constantly asking me and say and then when you don't know they ask well what do you feel like what are your symptoms and it's just like that's not really something you want to be talking about all the time when you're not even sure yeah what it it really feels like you know yeah it was very very confusing And also, like, one interesting thing to me is once you start to learn stuff about what's happening in your body, you interpret your symptoms differently. So when you Mm -hmm. have no idea what's wrong, you're just like, everything feels bad. And then, like, sometimes you can kind of get more detail and you're like, oh, you know, whatever, like, my lymph nodes are swollen and I have nerve pain. Those are just my things. So I'm just telling (laughs) you my thing. But, like, I didn't have the language to have even said that, you know, much Mm -hmm. earlier on. And, And especially as a like an 11 year old who I'm sure is not super embedded yeah. in that stuff um, <laughs> yeah it's weird I really don't remember that much and that yeah. kind of scares me now to to look back and I can't even remember what I did all those days where I wasn't in school I was going home early like it's just yeah. this weird large memory of time it's yeah yeah and very strange yeah when I had mono in high school which is not quite the same but it's like, this is still pre-streaming television. So mm-hmm. I think I watched like most of The Sopranos on VHS from Blockbuster. Like the yeah. things that you could do to try to make time pass when your yeah. body and brain weren't working were pretty different even compared to now. I remember making a Tumblr and that really was an amazing outlet for me, like to have that online community. And yeah, I would spend a lot of time on Tumblr and I ended up making like multiple blogs. And that's kind of where I started to write mm-hmm. and see it as an outlet for writing and creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I remember making a Facebook one day, like, I think I was like 13. I was like, mom, I'm just so bored all the time. Like, I don't even want a Facebook, but it would just be fun because I have literally nothing to do. And that was like an activity to like upload all these photos and yeah, I tried to do a lot of work from home. Yeah. But that was just difficult as well. Teachers weren't very accommodating. Schools in general yeah. were not great. Really, really, really shitty. Yeah. Yeah. I was really lucky. I went to um, a self paced high school, which I don't think, like, I don't know how many there are, but I don't think that there's more than like five total ever. And so. It's a completely unique environment where if you are out of school for a month straight, the curriculum is actually designed to be able to catch up later. And that's 
like everybody needs that that is living with chronic yeah. illness i think it's yeah bonkers Ooh, a really loud thing just went by um sorry okay so i want to talk about both of these things so it's kind of through if you were 11 that's probably middle school right yes yeah, yeah. Grade. so middle school and high school i would love to talk more about was there more medical investigation did you learn anything in that time and then also the kind of online what were you up to stuff yeah um so i i was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome um and i felt i remember thinking it it made a lot of sense um and i felt like this could be good this i took it as a positive it felt really nice to have a diagnosis um but it also felt really the i felt like the 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 words chronic fatigue aren't don't come across you know very seriously yeah (laughs) and that was annoying yeah um obviously now people are using me which is great (laughs) even if people don't know what it means right all right yeah I mean (laughs) just have something a little more like I'm not just tired you know what I mean and it's not tired it's fatigue it's different it's worse right Um, but yeah I was diagnosed with that and then I'm not even sure when but I was diagnosed with Lyme disease a year and a half after I first got sick um which we I had been tested from that for my pediatrician came back negative lots of I think my parents' friends were saying, you know, the tests aren't always reliable. Maybe look for a different doctor. I ended up seeing this specialist in New Jersey. Um, looking back on it, she was, I mean, even in the moment, it was very strange. It was this like a feel like an abandoned house in the middle of nowhere, in New Jersey, with just stacks and stacks of paperwork and didn't seem legitimate. Yeah, but it was a really, weird vibe really believed me yeah um, and really thought I had Lyme and I think she did the um what's the one the better Lyme test called uh the American one is Igenix typically yes yeah Yeah, that um do you know what kind of practitioner she was I think she's an infectious disease specialist okay was that I'm not sure. Yeah, it could be because it's such a yeah. range of like MDs who do do this, and then also mm-hmm. naturopaths who do this in states where that's possible, and then like yeah. miscellaneous other people. Like it's an interesting yeah. <laughs> kind of overlap. Very miscellaneous. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so she diagnosed me and basically explained that it was the same tests that my pediatrician had done as well, but that I was positive in New Jersey and negative in New York because of the where the cutoff was was different in every state that was incredibly confusing yeah. um, it's still, still confusing when I'm when I drive 10 minutes yeah <laughs> still in the same body um but yeah oh god my memory is so bad I don't I mean I remember going <laughs> on medication um I had a pick line for a few months okay um and so this well, would be still in middle school Yes, this like, was. It doesn't matter the precise, but like grade, yeah, yeah eighth like grade and ninth grade. Her, yeah. Okay. Like yeah. thirteen. I'd say thirteen to fifteen. I probably saw her. Okay. Um, I was on like forty pills a day. Um, I yeah. was on doxycycline, lots of supplements, mm-hmm. uh, and then did the the pick line because I wasn't getting any better. She would actually say that my test result that some of the stuff was improving, but I never felt it's it's difficult because in hindsight 
day to day you don't feel better but I was able to slowly start going to school more Mm -hmm. so something you know was changing but I don't want to say you know it was this treatment it's not that clear and easy to to say yeah it's so hard Um, to tell it's so hard to tell if it's just like a normal fluctuation because there is so much fluctuation or if it's something really working like Mm -hmm. I struggle with that now for sure yeah yeah um I switched middle schools twice so I went to sixth grade went to one school seventh grade another school eighth grade another school and that was really difficult Mm -hmm. um sixth grade they basically just hated me and were so unsupportive and totally wanted me to leave because they couldn't handle yeah you know your truancy (laughs) Um, and then I switched to another middle school, which was really, really great to start with um, and kind of ended up being the same thing. Um, I was on crutches for a while in seventh grade, and that was a like particularly traumatizing experience of kids, you know, other 12, 13 year olds literally saying me that, telling me I was faking it. And that just being a really bizarre yeah. experience. You know, yeah. if I had a on my foot, everyone would have so much sympathy. But the second it's not visible. Yeah. One of my teachers even questioned me and she said, well, if both of your legs are so weak, how do you decide which one to put most pressure on? And you're like, what kind of a question is that? Who is yeah. that helping? I don't know. It was, it was really, really difficult there. Um, just my most memories are crying in school, going to the nurse saying, I have this, this, I have chronic fatigue, you know, I'm just trying to not go into too much detail and getting the classic, but you look fine. You look super well. Yeah. Um, so my mom was encouraging me to look at another school and I just thought, Oh my God, I cannot transfer again. I don't want to go through this again. Yeah. Uh, but I'm so, so glad she, pushed me to do it because I ended up going to a really really great school that I stayed at through high school yay um even though high school was horrible just in general um, yeah in hindsight I'm so glad that it was horrible where it was (laughs) yeah um I was also homeschooled for a bit in seventh grade um well home I mean it was through the DOE so they sent a really lovely teacher to come around like three hours every day that was in the evenings oh interesting which was really helpful for me because the evenings I was was the best symptom wise for me mm-hmm. um yeah and the, how many months I went my mom wasn't working at the time we were just like hanging out all day every day I guess yeah. and I don't even remember what we did yeah like it's so just, much time passed yeah so much time um in eighth grade I was able to start going to school. Um, I missed probably average like one day a week, um, which was a big improvement for me. Um, I had had some really amazing teachers that helped a lot, made good friends for the mm-hmm. for first time in the past couple of years at, at school. Yeah. And that must make a huge difference on the like mental health side of things. Yeah. I remember in seventh grade, I, I, I didn't go to school for a few months. One day I woke up at like 7 a.m. just really randomly and I was like, I feel great. <laughs> I was so, so weird. I didn't know what was going on and I just felt like I have to go to school because I'm feeling well enough. So I have to go to school, even though part of me was like, but you haven't been in so long. What are you even going to do there? You know, how are you? are not even going to know what's going on in the, all the classes. Yeah. 
Um, but I was like, no, I'm well and I have to go. And I remember getting there and my friends not even realizing that I was back or had been gone, it seemed. They just said, oh, hi. Yeah. My teacher was saying, oh, Olivia, I didn't know you were going to be here today. It's just <laughs> making me feel much more horrible. Like, oh, we, we don't have a seat for you in class. You yeah. Know, it's very... Like, you don't belong here anymore. Yeah. So yeah. I think that year was probably, as I'm talking about it now, seems like probably the worst year. Yeah. Um, but I was also able to play soccer uh, up until ninth grade. And that was during uh, the Lyme treatment? Yeah. Yeah. And so. again, in hindsight, don't really know yeah, who knows? how I did that. Um, it was much more important to me than school. So I did have many days where I didn't go to school and I would go to practice or mm-hmm. have a tournament on the weekends and know that I would be missing a couple days of school. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was like fully what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. That was way more important to me than anything else. And the team I was playing on just felt like my team and that I had been on since I was eight. And it was just something, I think because I was so athletic, it was something that I, I think could have maybe helped me not get worse yeah. than I was. Cause I was still able to get exercise. Yeah. Um, and I think practice in the evenings was good for me as well because I felt like every morning I wake up feel absolutely horrible and then most days throughout the day I would slowly mm-hmm. feel a little bit better and I would feel most awake around eight or nine yeah um which isn't ideal right really yeah but I was able to go run run around yeah I mean it still was hard I would still like pass out on the side of the field and be yeah. like well, what am I doing to myself but <laughs> that was too much yeah, yeah. exercise is so hard because obviously, like, post-exertional malaise is totally real, and exercise can push people over the edge. But also, yeah. when you do have the energy and you are able to do something, like, that feels good, too. And so it's hard, like, which I feel like is exactly what you're articulating. Like, it felt like the right thing to be doing at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I loved it. That yeah. Was, it was my favorite thing to do. Um yeah. I mean, I developed, I got depressed pretty quickly after I got sick and yeah. obviously I had lots of doctors saying that the illness was depression, but then I would argue back that I, I didn't wake up with depression. I woke up with pain. And then because of that experience, I developed depression and anxiety. Right. Um, right. So yeah, it just felt like something I was able to hold on to. Yeah. And all the every doctor said that it was really good that I was playing and to try to keep it up and yeah but I had to stop in ninth grade I had made I had tried out for a much higher level team Mm -hmm. I felt like at that age if I wanted to pursue this as a career I really needed to take it more seriously Um, which was really hard because I loved my team so much and it it was it was just my team I didn't want to leave yeah Um, I went to these trials and I, I just had crippling anxiety like it was just horrible mm-hmm. um I made the team and I didn't even want to get to play on the team you know it was just yeah. like so terrifying um the girls weren't particularly welcoming right uh, I just felt like I wasn't good enough or that I wasn't wanted and but I knew it was something I had to do um and that quickly I think really took a toll on me mentally mm-hmm. it was really really hard for me to to fit in there and my anxiety just got the worst anxiety mm-hmm. I think still to this day that I've ever experienced was yeah. 
going to those practices and sitting in the car and thinking I cannot I cannot go go out there and play I can't do it and I always did and I never I I still feel like you know I never played the best I could have for that team and I just wasn't able to because of how much anxiety I had um and the end of that season was when I got my pick line Mm. and so I didn't play for the end of that season uh, it was just horrible and then at the end of that I was like I have to I have to quit like it was the hardest decision I think I've made was yeah saying I can't play anymore yeah um but yeah emotionally very very difficult to give that up and something I'm still yeah. struggling with. the women's world cup is on now every game I watch just yeah. It's not too late. I'm going to get my first cap for the U.S. women when I'm 30. Yeah. You're like, soccer, I'm coming back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so now, hard. It, it's so hard. I have also feel like I have really accepted that that's just not, you know, it's yeah. just not my thing anymore. But, but it, it's still very sad. And yeah. to have that what if is what's the most difficult thing. Yeah. It's still in to there. Not, yeah. To know that I've never given it a a full a full hundred percent of trying to see if I was good enough to, to play in college to mm-hmm. see if I can make it professionally I just wanted to because I believed in myself so much and I just wanted to yeah to see if I could do it so not having been, been able to even try yeah is what's really difficult and I still identify as a footballer like and yeah. I'm not right. I haven't played in years but I feel like that's just part of who I am yeah like I still have a drawer of all my soccer clothes. Yeah. <laughs> Don't. No, <play. laughs> no, that's so relatable though. I think of like um somebody that I talked to, Liz, in episode five. I want to say she was a competitive swimmer, like at the college level, D one athlete, whatever, and she got sick in in between seasons. And so she talks a lot about a lot of the same stuff of being like, this was my thing, and I was into it, mm-hmm. and I was good at it, and I knew what my body could do, and then my body couldn't do it anymore. And it like that fight, I don't know if fight's the right word, but that struggle, like it doesn't go away. Mm. And and I don't know if this was your experience on that team, but as you were talking about the anxiety of it, it was just making me think about how I think a lot of like athletic culture in general is also about pushing yourself past your limits all the time. And I mean, I'm sure there's an argument to be made that that's kind of damaging for everybody. But Mm -hmm. when you're chronically ill and like don't, you know, and don't have the tools to kind of put that all together. Like, that's a really fucking ableist message that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You don't know what your limits are. It's not, you know, knowing what it felt like to be a healthy athlete and feeling like, okay, this, this feeling of the end of a weekend tournament or whatever, Mm -hmm. then suddenly I start feeling like that from walking five minutes. Right. And then trying to and then playing again and having that feeling and then it's it's just this feeling isn't related to just this one totally. trigger anymore yeah um so yeah it was very difficult and and scary i remember f- hearing about people who've died from lyme disease and i really got it in my head that that's how bad i was that i that i could die from this and i really needed to be careful and because it felt the disease felt so unknown and not understood Mm -hmm. it's just there's no clear path of this is my diagnosis and this is what my life can probably look like yeah there wasn't that 
yeah clear vision um, which was really difficult but but I mean having when I got diagnosed I was so relieved I was so happy I felt that that my illness was real I I felt like okay I'm not just this dramatic whiny obnoxious teenager yes um, which I still have to remind myself because it's so so ingrained in me that this is just me being dramatic me being lazy oh my god I feel that's so hard it's so ridiculous and then I get so angry at myself you know I'm like come on Olivia you're not like you know that you're sick and then there's still this part of my brain that's like no you're not just get out of bed you can do it just decide not to be like stop Mm -hmm. indulging that's what my inner voice is like yeah yeah um it's horrible it is okay so let's say so tell me about I guess after you were working with the New Jersey practitioner, so you had been working with this one person for about two years, it sounds like, on focused on Lyme. Um, and then what was what was next? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> to the best was, of your memory. <laughs> I think it was towards the end of nine. I could be so wrong. Okay. But she basically, like, canceled me as a patient. Oh, cool. Um, like, it was something about wanting to put me on something well backtrack a little bit I was given some I think it was just water because I wasn't drinking enough water that I had to do through my pick line like once a day or or something yeah like saline or something yeah saline um and I had a really bad experience with having I had air bubbles in the line um and was suffocating Um, and I didn't know I was suffocating. It was just this bizarre sensation in my chest and throat. And I was just like, this is bad. Like, this is not safe. We didn't realize until after the fact what had actually happened. Um, I had another experience where I tried to do the pick line on my own and it just filled up with blood, like, just because I hadn't held it up high enough or whatever. Yeah. And I'm just freaking out. I'm going to bleed to death. I was alone with my brother. Yeah. And I just felt really let down by this doctor for for not really explaining enough to me and just kind of letting me kind of figure it out I mean she would tell me what to do but not clearly not well enough yeah like if this Uh, stuff was happening it would have been great to have had more kind of coaching of like here are some of the ways that without being dramatic here are some of the things that can go wrong and here's what you could do mm, about them yeah yeah Yeah. um so those are really scary experiences um and lost a lot of trust in Mm -hmm. her um so I think it was something along the lines of her wanting me to do a try a new treatment or to go on a diet or something that I didn't want to do and so she said if you're not gonna listen to me then I'm no longer your doctor yeah just kind of in one email like that um and I don't think I saw anyone well, in 10th grade, I started seeing a therapist. Um, I'd seen a few therapists before that were just not helpful or understanding or yeah, didn't seem to care about me at all whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, but I started seeing someone new, and I still see her now. Um, and she, I think since I saw her, I really was able to learn how to deal with things I guess that were more in my control and just kind of live I was in I mean I was lucky enough to be in a place where I could just live with the symptoms and still be able to do enough yeah um like it was a life 
yeah, I was able to go to school um, for the most part enough to to graduate and do my homework and all that stuff. Um, and I really just focused on anxiety um, and my depression and what I can do mm-hmm. to deal with those things. And my anxiety would get had gotten really bad in high school. I had a phobia of eating in public. I would I remember just locking myself in bathrooms during lunch and just like shoving a slice of pizza down my throat like it was this crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, I became really, really terrified of the subway. My brother had to, to take me to school for a year and then my dad would have to drive me to school for a year. Um, sometimes after school, I would just freak out at the thought of it and have to wait for someone to come get me. Yeah. Um, and those were really difficult things to deal with. Um, yeah. Living in New York City and just having all this chaos constantly around you and times when you've, when I've had to go home early and the woman in the office is, for, for one time I had to go home early and the office lady says, what is your problem, Olivia? I have chronic Lyme disease too and I'm here every day. Cool. That's super <laughs> helpful. <Wow>. Thank you. <laughs> and Jeez. I just remember being on the subway home that afternoon just like sobbing yeah and then it being worse because everyone on the train was staring at me you know I had to go I had to transfer trains and it just like everything about it just made the situation so much worse yeah um do you think I I was just gonna say do you think that some of that was also maybe like a sensory overload issue I know yeah like not to say I mean I think mental health and physically health physical health are so connected but yeah sure like I know sometimes like when I'm not feeling well being in a crowded environment is it's just so overwhelming to even process and so like worrying about that can really amp it up I don't know definitely I mean I wonder a lot about what growing up in New York City like what kind of effect that has had on me I'm I'm lived in London for three years and now I live in a really really small city Um, and since I moved here this September I have felt generally better um and it's it it's one of those things again that's hard to really pinpoint yeah but i yeah i i wonder i think air pollution noise pollution those type of things even just the energy of new york i just find really negative mm-hmm. um and here it's more like people actually enjoying their walk from point a to point b not sprinting to go to a meeting that they don't want to go to and yeah. buy some overpriced juice yeah you know there's not just like tension hanging everywhere that you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I live in a village now and I relate to that also. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So that was high school basically. And if there was more, go ahead. I don't want to cut you off, but I mean, God, high school. <laughs> I really, it was really, 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 really horrible for me. Um, I was yeah, very suicidal at points. Um, I feel like, the only thing that really kept me going was my family um, was super close with my parents and my brother. And it just having that was really my only positive for a long time was mm-hmm. my family. And I'm so grateful yeah. for them, especially for my mom, for taking me to all those doctor's appointments when I first got sick and advocating for me and yeah. not just being another voice saying, get over it and go to school. Yeah, you know? not saying it's all in your head. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's powerful that's really powerful mm-hmm. um but somehow I was able to get through it 
I really wanted to drop out many times that I was always searching for some alternative thing I could do, what different school I could go to, a semester abroad, could I move in with my aunt in Maine, my aunt in London, constantly trying to think of just something else, because mm-hmm. I just felt like every day was so unbearable. Yeah. Um, and it was just so hard on my body. I mean, everything was... Yeah. I, I'm really, I used to really want to go into education reform, just because I think, regardless of having a disability or chronic illness I think the environment of education these days is extremely harmful and unhealthy and just put so much pressure on young people that are just trying to figure out who they are and trying to have relationships and hobbies and I just don't think there's enough space for them to actually do that yeah um, and I, I'm just it's yeah really really horrible um, but when I was about I think I was a sophomore I got it in my head that I was going to go to college abroad and that was just my thing since then. That was the, what really made me able to go to school every day and have that in the back of my mind. That I'm going to get the grades I need to go to this school. Yeah. And when I get there, that will be my life. That won't be, you know, yeah. I just be hated New York. I had to get out. Yeah. Um, so I don't think I saw any other do- doctor in high school. Yeah. Sometimes also you just don't. You're like, mm-hmm. honestly, what are they going to do? I'm just trying to survive and have other interests besides telling my story to doctors and then trying their protocol yeah. over and over again. Like, sometimes you need a break from that. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. Yeah. And I, I really felt that prioritizing therapy for me obviously specifically was was good for a good choice for me and to just focus on taking things one day at a time and things that I can handle yeah I'm giving myself you know permission to do what I need to do and not feel guilty about it yeah every day I would stay home sick I was just filled with so much guilt that I couldn't actually have the day off that I needed yes and trying to learn how to to force yourself to have those days where it's like it's fine I'm not in school school really doesn't fucking matter anyway so yes just take the day yeah just Um, take take care of yourself don't feel bad about it god that's really mm -hmm. hard everyone needs to learn that yeah (laughs) um but yeah I I got into the school that I really wanted to go to in London and a senior year was just counting down. I couldn't believe that I was a senior. I couldn't, I really, really could not visualize myself graduating. It mm-hmm. seemed like something that just wouldn't happen. Um, I was sure it wouldn't happen, even though I knew it was going to happen. Right. Um, and that was really one of the most amazing days. I think probably will be for a long time. It's just my high school graduation. What yeah. an achievement. You got there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I moved to London in almost, well, before years ago, this September. Mm-hmm. Um, and my health was probably the best it had been since I got sick for that first year of university. Um, and I, I, I think, I mean, I, I'm so interested in the connection between mental health and physical health and what what your brain can do yeah and I do think there's a lot to be said about how I visual so strongly visualized what this year would be like and thought about it for so long 
um, and it, I, it was almost just like I executed it perfectly. Like it yeah. was exactly what I thought it would be. Yeah. And I was so happy. Um, I went on a holiday by myself, like flew to Berlin for a few days, stayed with some strangers, flew to Paris. And I just felt like this, yeah. is, this is who I am now. These are the things I'm going to be choosing to do and I'm able to do them. Yeah. And I've made this new life for myself and I don't have to carry around any of the things that I dealt with in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really great. Um, the end of that year wasn't so great. And it felt kind of a similar high school, middle school vibe of like doing okay for some time and then crashing and then going to my summer house in Maine and just kind of like being in bed and sleeping a lot and kind of like recharging. And then I would go back to school and be okay for maybe three, four months. And then I would unwind a bit and then it would happen again. Yeah. Um, And it just kind of felt like that really. And I went back to Maine for the summer and just totally crashed and I was just so unbelievably fatigued sleeping like 15 hours just could not get out of bed um and that's when I was like I really feel like I need to see someone again that mm-hmm. it became it, when it comes to a point I guess where I felt like I couldn't do the things I needed to do yeah to feel like I was living then I need to see what can be done um but it was just so it's so hard to find a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody <laughs> and who that's so sad. Yeah. Somebody who like one is able to listen and not automatically say, like, oh, this is just your mental health. This is all mental health. And two, someone who like is willing to say that they don't know and they'll do the research. Yeah. Or like that they can direct <laughs> you to people. God, yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and were you looking um in the States or were you looking for a doctor in the UK? So I was looking in the States because I was in Maine. I was hoping I could see someone while I was still in Maine. Um, I had a few phone calls with calling, you know, the local doctor explaining my situation. Or I called a few people who I knew were infectious disease specialists. And they were saying, oh, they don't have any availability until, you know, for two years. Yeah. And I'm just like crying down the phone to them. Like, what am I supposed to do? Just tell me what to do to get seen by someone. Like I'm losing my life. Something has to be done. And they just have no answers. Um, I was recommended to see, I think she's a naturopath. I think she's a homeopath. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, I went to her office by myself and, I felt like a bit, I don't know what the right word is for someone that you don't necessarily trust. Yeah. That maybe it's a bit sketchy in their practice, you think. Yeah. But then fully believes you. Yeah. Listens to you and then tells you, we we do do these very odd tests um, for all these co-infections, but they were all co-infections that I had previously tested positive for and she didn't know. And I just was like, well of course you know this is she's so right this test is so amazing I I just fully believed it it's like you feel really validated so validated and then I get into this mindset which I always feel like before I started treatment of like almost that it's like a sport like I am going all out I'm going in on this my whole life's going to change and I'm going to like kill it it's going to be great like it's just gonna, I'm gonna be full of all this energy devoted yep. to getting rid of Lyme disease, yep. and that's not realistic. And like, and it's worth it for me to put everything else in my life on hold 
to like put all my energy into this thing because it'll pay off. So like mm-hmm. every time I'm just going to completely stop my life. That Yeah. Uh, yes. I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> so I went to another appointment with her, talked about like we did some blood, blood work and stuff and then talked about what the treatment would be. Um, and it was like a bunch of different vials for each, for the Lyme, all the co-infections under the tongue. Yeah, yeah. It tasted horrible. And then a bunch of pills on top of that. And then the diet, it wasn't even, you know, gluten-free, sugar-free, dairy-free. It was, she gave me a, a single piece of paper with all the things that I could eat on it. Ooh. Um, which was nothing. Yeah. And the only thing I could drink was water. I couldn't even have like tea or seltzer. Like it was literally just water. That'd be really like that's Boring. so yeah, and like <laughs> depriving. Like the feeling of deprivation mm-hmm. with these diets can be a huge fucking issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I so got I get feeling pretty like I can do this. I drove home with my mom and just like cried the whole way and in my head was like I told myself this was the last treatment I would try yeah that this was my my last turn at getting better um my mom did the diet with me uh so we were on our own in Maine just eating carrots basically yeah carrots and water Um, (laughs) and god and I went back to London and my second year of university still which was more difficult because I was living, you know, three housemates who could eat what they wanted, just going out to the pub where people would drink yeah. beer that's full of gluten. And, um, but I did really well and I was really proud of myself, like for sticking with it and felt like just was trying to really visualize myself getting better. Yeah. Um, but I didn't. And then my doctor would kind of just like not respond to my emails. Um, she would say, let's set up a Skype. And I would say, okay, I'm free this day. And then, you know, nothing. Yeah. Send her a follow-up email. I'm running out of this. Should I get more? You know, no response. And mm-hmm. then just kind of slowly just, again, that feeling of like the doctor doesn't actually care about my health. Are they just doing this to make money? Yeah. Do they even believe in their treatment? Yeah. I mean, this woman had told me she was a hundred percent sure that I would get better from her treatment, that everyone she's treated with Lyme has gotten better. Yeah. And you want to believe that obviously. Yeah. Um, And like, I do think that some at least of these people do believe it, but in this extremely busted way of like they believe that the protocol works. And so whenever the protocol doesn't work, it must be the patient. Like, I Mm -hmm. think that some at least some practitioners, that's where the breakdown is, which is just as bad. Like, that's just as bad as misrepresenting how helpful you think you are. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't I just stopped seeing her. Um, that was a pretty rough year just for other reasons, not health related as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was able to, to be okay generally. Yeah. Still um, in school doing yeah, it. Yeah. I did have really good accommodations at university. My tutor was really, really helpful from the first time I met her. I just explained to her what my situation was and she just got me the accommodations I needed for extensions on anything and if I wasn't able to make it there was no guilt or anything Mm -hmm. which was really refreshing yeah that's awesome Um, so I'm really 
glad I was able to have kind of that positive experience in education of people willing to accommodate and not not made to feel like you're asking for too much. Yeah. Um, and then third year, when? God, this memory. Yeah, I I hear you. It all kind of I, like bleeds together, even when it's yeah. really recent. I'd started seeing another person in London um, who I had interviewed Dr. Richard Horowitz mm. um, in third year for, I studied journalism. So it was a feature I was doing on Lyme disease. Um, and our conversation was really interesting. And I, I would, I told him about previous treatments I had done. And one of the interesting things he said about people who just aren't able to get better um, could be some emotional trauma, um, something your body's programmed to not be well. Mm-hmm. And I really kind of felt like that could be mm-hmm. something that I've been dealing with because I don't remember what it's like to really be well. Even when I have good days, it's still, it's just not the same because it's just a day, you yeah. know, and it's, I still don't ever feel like I have a day where I fully have no symptoms. It's always, yeah there in in one way or another that I'm so used to I might not even realize yeah um and another doctor I interviewed in London said that he followed Horowitz's practice and I really believed in his practice um from the research I'd done and his first book I think it was I read Mm -hmm. um I just felt like it made sense to me it felt legitimate um and refreshing and coming from like a scientific place that was legit yeah um so I decided to see the person who said he followed that practice um I ended up not actually seeing him but someone else at his practice um which is actually at London Clinic of Nutrition um and she's a naturopath and again the exact same experience of do I trust this woman oh but she totally believes me and promises that I'll be well and is full of all these ideas and you just okay I can do this again you know here we go yeah uh, back to gluten-free sugar-free dairy-free and I was all for it like I can do this I'm gonna feel so amazing I'm just gonna be full of vegetables and it's gonna feel great yeah um obviously it doesn't because I lost weight and you're not eating what your body is saying I want to eat that and how is that healthy yeah <laughs> to just constantly not give your body what it clearly needs yeah um, so that was really harmful for me. Um, and I was just more tired because I wasn't eating. Yeah. Um, she would tell me to have green tea if I was hungry. That's, yeah, that's super problematic. Dangerous. <laughs> like, like I'm all for people experimenting with elimination diets because they can make a big difference when you figure out stuff that is a problem. But like, just don't eat and drink tea. I understand that's not a direct translation but like that's super (laughs) problematic and like incur there's so much difficulty around like eating and culture and all this stuff that the like wellness industry you know diets can really exacerbate and that's scary it's scary when practitioners don't like think about that for some reason yeah it's it is really scary I've, I recently read a book called Just Eat It, and it was all about intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. And I really identify with a lot of stuff in there. It really opened my eyes to, obviously, personal to me of how diets, I feel, were much more harmful 
Yeah. I mean, I didn't have anything good, I don't think. Like, I didn't feel any better whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and it was just, I mean, I still haven't gained the weight back, even though I've been eating normally for almost a year. Mm-hmm. So it's just, I don't, I'm, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> yeah, that was not for you, it sounds Not like. for me. Um, but I don't even, I can't even remember what, what I did with this woman. <laughs> Yeah, probably other... I was on supplements, yeah. for sure, um, and drops and stuff, and just, yep. again, just the same thing of no improvement, and just, like, so much... The treatment is so much effort, Yes. even though it seems like small things. Like, oh, you just have to tip this vial under your tongue. But, like, away but from food, four times a day. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just, you know, take these ones before you eat, these ones while you eat, these ones after you eat... Um, don't mix this with that, you know, have only this for breakfast. It's just a lot to think about, a lot to deal with when you're trying to just navigate a fun, social, young person's life. Yeah. Um, and I had a really weird experience doing this body scan with her oh. that I still don't really understand was. So it was like body scan, basically, but there, I'm scanned by their hands yeah um like hovering over you like they would touch one part of my body and then she would hold hands with the other person um whose eyes would be closed and they would test the strength in their hands based on where they were touching on my body okay and sometimes they would be like really firm and other times they would be super weak and they would then be like oh it's definitely Borrelia right here okay um and that's really intense to have an experience where people are so confident they know what's wrong yeah but also a lot of it made sense um they were saying that there was something in my jaw and they couldn't figure out what it was and when I said I had gotten my wisdom teeth out they it was this aha moment and they were like you have babesia trapped in your wisdom teeth and that's why you can't get better your medication does not cannot reach your brain and your brain doesn't know what's going on yeah so I mean that's a lot of information at once that sounds ridiculous um but then again it sounded at the time like totally reasonable yeah no I hear that (laughs) and you think oh okay this is the reason why my why none of my treatments have worked and now that I know this we can fix this and then I can get better yeah um, and she prescribed me all this tapping, yep. which I had never heard of before. That seemed very strange to me. But the more I did research on it, the more I was like on board with it. Yeah. Uh, and felt like, why not to basically almost anything? <laughs> yeah. And as far as like things to try go, tapping, I mean, it takes time, but it's like, you know, it's not invasive. It's free. Yeah, it's free. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I did a few more months with her. I did a, like a vitamin C IV one time, Mm -hmm. um, didn't really feel much from that. Yeah. And then I would email her same thing that with my other doctor, I'd say, I'm running out of this. Should I order more? And she would say, Oh, well, you need to schedule an appointment to go over these things with me. And I was like, well, we're not due for an appointment. I don't want to pay a large amount of money just to ask if I should order more. Yeah. Um, a few different things like that happened, you know, yeah, we need to have an appointment. Let's do this day. And then she would just never get back to me. And I'm like, well, 
you know, I'm suddenly out of my medication now. Like, I don't have any more. I don't know if there's going to be side effects from suddenly stopping. Like, everything is completely unclear. And then all the trust is lost. And then it's over. Yeah. And that was my last experience um, yeah. for treatment. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's frustrating. I also did acupuncture in third year. Um, and I, I did have a positive experience with that. Um, but again, nothing like super impactful where I felt like yeah. this is making my quality of life so much better. It's just little things. Yeah. And I do kind of believe that you have to do, or for me at least, do all these little things at once to really feel something. Yeah. And that costs a lot of money. Yeah. And time and commitment and energy. Yeah. So it's just not doable really for everyone yeah or like not doable all the time mm-hmm. and it, yeah it costs so much time and energy to throw so many things at it and you can't and then when you're throwing lots of things at it you can't actually tell which ones are helping so if you want to <laughs> save time or energy you're not like oh well this one of these things is the one that's a dud so i'll just cut that out mm-hmm. like one thing that did really help me was cbd oil mm. um that I had an amazing reaction to it and it was so clear it was I took it and I just had energy and I could walk and walk and walk and I felt like I was not high obviously but I was in this higher place almost where everything was just like felt clearer and better Um, and I was so happy and felt like this could really change my life Um, but that wore off Mm. um, and like it's not I'm as not, effective now. It's not effective at all. Yeah. Um, and I had spoken to some people who make their own CBD oil and was asking about the one I took because it's I don't know how, if how you say it, but it's like liposomes. They are like, li- like liposomal whatever. Yeah. Yeah, like they supposed to more efficiently transport it throughout your body. Yeah. Um, and these people I spoke to said that they know people where that wears off and that it's better to just take the straight CBD with nothing in it. Mm-hmm. So I started taking that recently and haven't felt anything. Yeah. Uh, so that's really, it's disappointing to like feel, you know, have a little taste of this is like something that works and yeah. then just kind of lose that. Yeah, I bet. Uh, so yeah, right now I'm not this, this, since I, I guess for the past year, I haven't done anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been pretty good. Yeah. Like stable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been working like part time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been pretty doable for me. Do you go somewhere to work or do you work from home? Yeah. I work at a pub. I was oh, trying, wow. I really wanted to have a remote job. Yeah. Um, and I just couldn't find anything. Yeah. Like, I, I just felt like, oh, surely I'll get a remote writing job. I have a journalism degree. I have a good amount of experience that I did at university, which I was really proud of myself for being able to do that. Um, and also lucky that I was physically able to do more than just get to uni. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just no opportunities. I mean, there's nothing really where I live now. Yeah. Um, so that was really disappointing. But I worked at a little brewery in London and I would just work one day a week and that was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I still had to call in sick a fair amount of time and it, that was 
really frustrating and still dealt with all the guilt, which was really horrible. Yeah. Um, but here it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it is kind of nice sometimes to have this routine that forces me out of the house, mm-hmm. um, be on my feet. It is, I, for me, I consider it quite active. Yeah, I would. <laughs> and it's nice to have people to talk to. Everyone I work with is really nice. So to just get out of the house, even just to talk to the customers, just have some, something outside of my bedroom. Yeah. Um, can be really nice. And then obviously you have the opposite of some days where I just think, what am I doing? Yeah. Why, why do I think I can work at a pub? Yeah. Uh, but I, I have been able to do it. I've been there, I think, seven months now. So. Yeah. But yeah. I just work 16 hours and they're pretty short shifts. So I'm quite lucky. Yeah. And I don't start early in the morning. So that's good. And I don't finish that late. So it's really mm-hmm. a good balance for me. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Like figuring out what are the best ways to like mitigate harm. <laughs> kind of yeah as like sad as that sounds to phrase it that way but yeah like how do I avoid early mornings and late nights and commitments over five hours or whatever it is yeah it's not easy yeah no it's yeah and like I feel like even one of the things with writing just because you were talking about that like so when you're first starting to write I worked as an editor for like five years or something before I stopped working um, so it's kind of on the other side, but I know it's like intro writing jobs don't pay well. And if your energy or your cognitive ability is like not reliable, um, then that effort to compensation uh, relationship yeah. is like not super great, especially when you're starting out. So that's, yeah, that's yeah. freaking difficult. Um, yeah. So that's the present. I would love to hear about how Sick Magazine came about. Yeah, so that, I had that idea in second year. I was working at a pizza restaurant, just waitressing part-time. I really enjoyed it at first um, and then had to call in sick a few times really last minute, which is, of course, completely out of my control. I'm very aware that restaurants rely on humans to show up and wait on tables. Yeah. But there's only so much I can physically do. And if I'm well up until 10 minutes before I have to leave, that's I have no choice but to give that amount of notice. Right. Um, Obviously, that wasn't enough for them and they pretty much fired me they were like have the month off and then we'll talk but obviously we never talked again yeah um so at that day where I had we had that conversation over text and he kept using the word reliable yeah and yeah I went back into my room and I was just so so upset I feel like I had made such a life for myself that was really independent and then all of a sudden I just kind of felt like actually I'm living in this like false universe it's not possible there's no way I'm going to be able to maintain this beyond university Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to support myself like if I can't work full-time how am I going to live on a part-time salary what if I can't work part-time what if I can't work at all what am I going to do do I have to to move back to the states and live with my parents forever like yeah am I going to have to constantly rely on other people Yeah. Um, when, when I wanted to be able to, I, I, I knew I was capable. I was capable of going to university. I was still able to do, it was this in-between space, mm-hmm. you know, where you are able to do things, 
but you need accommodations and flexibility to do them. Yeah. And, and they're I not think... the kind of accommodations that we typically think about or that are like yeah. explicitly sometimes uh, like written into law. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just thinking what I could do, what, how am I going to make my life work? Because I, I didn't want to just, I mean, I didn't even know what I was saying. I didn't know where I was going to go. I was just like, what can I do to make myself work? And I was, I felt like I had to be my own boss. And then I thought I would actually be a really good boss Yeah. because I'm understanding and I would know what, I would know how to make people not feel guilty and to give them the time and space they need. And I love magazines. I've always loved magazines. I've always loved writing. Um, and throughout uni, I really pictured myself working at a magazine in London, being mm-hmm. working at features, um, which I don't know why I was so confident that I would, I like the full time working thing never really registered in my brain. Yeah. Um, but quickly realized that I wasn't gonna be able to do that. Yeah, like Anne Hathaway um, and Devil Wears Prada, like <laughs> that that career path. And you're like, oh yeah, no, yeah. that looks terrible actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, it just all came to me at once from that conversation. I was like, I'm going to start a magazine and it's going to only employ people who are chronically disabled and it's going to be called Sick because that's a sick name. Yeah. And this is going to be amazing. And I just started planning it from there. Um, so that was over two years ago. I didn't really want to launch it yet. Um, I really wanted, my plan was to work as a journalist for a few years, get as much experience as I could. And then once I actually had more experience as an editor, I would be able to call myself an editor. I felt like, in a way, who am I to do this magazine? Who am I to call myself a founder, an editor of something? Like, I felt like people would just laugh at me um, and just think, you don't have the experience to do this. but I kind of felt like I had no choice. And I felt like I was in a good place to do it. Working 16 hours, I had time. Mm-hmm. Um, where I am now, I feel like it's a nice place to do it. Um, and I just had a conversation with my friend about it. And I was just like, why don't I just do it now? Like, I don't, I couldn't see anything coming along that, you know, a job opportunity that I would put on hold for. There was just, I feel like there's no opportunities so I just went for it and it's been really, really terrifying. Um, it's been so fun, but every day I think I'm like, what am I doing? But then, you know, five minutes later, I'm like, I know exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. Like I feel great and I'm so excited. And then like, oh God, I'm so overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I really, I really want it to like my ultimate goal is to have a actual office space um and obviously have people work remote but have that space as well to mm-hmm. have people completely flexible contracts so a full-time salary or a part-time salary but not have it be like a set hours thing but just the job needs to you need to do the work in whatever way you can yeah. and something I didn't really think about but I'm thinking about now because I was originally was like okay it'll be a yearly and I'm thinking I just want it to be like a deadline free kind of magazine um and not even like even as I've been commissioning pieces for this first issue and people ask what the deadline is I'm just like it's 
it's just around this time, like, you know, just if, if you can't do the article on time, I'm not going to say you can't be in the issue. I'll just push it. There's no rush. Yeah. Uh, This doesn't need to be out in the world as soon as possible, you know? Yeah. And I think it's really nice to have this space of where magazines are really associated with deadlines and you have to get this to print. This has to be right on time and just take a step back and be like, this is just going to be a slow process um, and representative of our lives kind of being that way. Yeah. Um, But I would really love to have an office and just be full of people who are sick and disabled and just don't have to worry about their boss understanding or asking for time off or going home early or anything. And I just think it is so needed and there are so many people who would love to work for a place like that. Yeah. And just feel like I should make it happen. Yeah. But we'll see. I need money to do it. So. (laughs) Yeah. That's always the obstacle, right? (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's, I mean, that's like the number, well, when I stopped working, I was also like in a really bad flare where my brain wasn't working. So I functionally couldn't edit no matter how many awake hours I had. But like, as that started to clear up, my brain's been really good for the last like, I don't know, year and a half, maybe in terms of how often I have like really bad cognitive fatigue or brain fog. But like the deadlines for editing are the number one reason that I haven't like started looking for even part-time work in that way. Because I'm just like, yeah. especially online with online publications, it's like you're looking at 24 hour turnaround time often. And 24 hour turnaround time is not happening. It's just not no. happening. Sometimes I don't check my email for a week because that's just yeah. like how long it takes to get enough brain power to answer emails. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, like it's so needed. And I'm so excited about like all experiments on figuring this out because at this point in time we I feel like we have with the internet and like ways to connect with people and distribution channels like it's there the like network to make this this kind of thing possible exists and it's so it's like figuring out the mechanisms which is totally what you're talking about of like yeah okay what needs to be true for me to be able to pay people for provide like for doing all of this like emotional labor or creative work or whatever however they're able it's an exciting question and I've proven it myself, like since I've started working on the magazine, I've been working, I've been logging the hours I've spent and I work basically full time mm-hmm. on the magazine plus my part time bar work. And yeah. I am able to physically do that, yeah. but I need to be able to work from bed. I need to be able to take a nap at random times. Sometimes I work from 11 to one in the morning, Yeah, at, you know, on my couch where my boyfriend's watching TV and you need like everyone should be allowed to do things in the way that works for them. And I am able to do good work. I'm able to, to do the job. And I I know there are so many other people that are in the the same situation. Yeah. And I don't see why there's, why, why employers can't be more accommodating. I think a lot of the time it doesn't actually affect anything. Like I did an internship at Mary Claire and it was, it was only two weeks. Um, and it was really great, but, basically sent emails the entire time didn't even speak to who was sitting next to you and I was like I could be doing all of this from home yeah and you know that if you ask they'd be like no no no, you need to be here in person yeah but you don't there's no reason why it's just that that's the way things are yeah the same with working hours being nine to five that's just the way things are a two-day yeah. weekend why is that the way things are it's not great it's not I don't think it's healthy like no 
I mean, I think three-day weekends should be a normal thing just for sanity. And not just for people living with chronic illness either. Like, the whole structure is obsolete. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And our culture is just about overworking, I feel like. And, you know, the hustle and going to the gym before you go to work when your work starts at nine. I'm like, how do these people do this? But that's something to be jealous of or to be, to admire. And I think, I mean, obviously whatever makes you happy is fine. I just don't think there should be this one model of what everyone strives for because we're all so completely different. Like there shouldn't be a normal or this is the way you're supposed to live. Or now that you're an adult, Mm -hmm. these are the things you're supposed to do. Yeah. And this so, is what a healthy, like, schedule looks like, even. Yeah. It's like the sleep police who are out there telling you to, like, get off all right. your devices four hours before bedtime or whatever. Like, I'm yeah. sure that that helps people. I want It's the same as diets. <laughs> I want people who are having trouble with sleep to try that, to experiment yeah. with sleep hygiene. But I don't want the sleep police running around telling everybody that it's their own fault that, like, mm-hmm. their bodies are unhappy or whatever. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's awesome. I'm excited. Um, Do you know... So the first you're doing like um, a zine first, is that right? Like a smaller, yeah. a smaller issue, and then planning a larger issue later. Yeah. So my plan is to kind of be like, here's what sick is gonna be like. If you want to see this happen, please donate to us and yeah. let us pay all of our creators. Um. So I'm tentatively planning it to be published in July. Mm-hmm. Um. And then I'm also hoping to do like a launch event here in Norwich. And then I'm planning on having like a fundraiser in New York City in the fall. Oh, cool. Um, and launching a GoFundMe and kind of all of that based around raising the money for yeah. the next issue, which I am confident that I'll be able to get. Yeah. And I have a, lots of people that I plan on reaching out to personally. And mm-hmm. um, I'm just, yeah, I'm trying to go all out on it and yeah. raise as much money as I can and I, I want it to, to be big. I want it to be powerful and important and really yeah. heard. Um, and I've received a lot of really positive feedback, which has been really, really nice. Um, so, yeah, I am, I'm really excited about it. And I've just really, really enjoyed yeah. working on it. Like, it doesn't feel like working. It feels like what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. And it's really rewarding. Yeah, I believe that. I feel that way about the podcast of, like, these interviews are intensive and they take up some energy as you can imagine and like the administrative work is different but kind of in the same vein of like making a thing that involves a lot of internet stuff like Mm. other computer time happens but it's just like fuck I love having these conversations and I love sharing these conversations and then I love talking about them with other people and I feel like yeah I know you're you're collecting like kind of a variety of Maybe perspective is the wrong word, but like styles or, or whatever. Like you're looking for all kinds of different outlooks on this stuff. Yeah. But like this this needs to be out there. Our stories or our whatevers need to be out there for sure. And it's really exciting. Yeah. And I also am I'm not just publishing stuff that's about illness and disability, mm-hmm. which I'm excited about. I just think it's interesting to see how, you know, your perspective as someone who's dealt with certain things influences your outlook and mm-hmm. the way you speak to people, the type of questions you ask, the way, why you write the way you do. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping, I mean, oh, I'd say like 95% of submissions I received were about illness and disability. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like I, I might try to make it a bit 
clearer that I do want a mix and a balance. Yeah. Um, especially because I feel like there are quite a lot of places that are just focused on that, and I just want it to be a bit different and a more unique space. Yeah. Um, like fuller so I'm body. Hoping, yeah, to have more of a balance. Yeah, that's great. And also, hopefully, whoever's listening to this can know that for if they want to pitch. Um, I guess like official issue number one, the 2020. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I'm kind of mad at myself because I this is called issue 01 and I was like the full issue is going to be called one and then I was like that's so confusing I can't have an 01 and then a one so now I just have 01 and now yeah. I'm going to have to do two and it just yeah <laughs> doesn't make any sense yeah it's what happened but yeah whatever yeah. I hear that um awesome so I think we've covered all of my main topics on your timeline is there anything that's in your brain about any of this stuff that we haven't covered yet it's okay if the answer is no. i mean there's probably so much stuff i yeah. said but <laughs> no <laughs> okay no that's good i'd like we've, we've been talking about all kinds of things so that's normal but i like to check with people awesome well thank you so much for talking to me and making the time and all of that i'm excited to share this oh well, thank you for having me Thank you for listening to episode 40 of No End in Sight. You'll be excited to hear that the intro issue of Sick Magazine is now available for pre-order at sickmagazine.co.uk, and it includes a piece written by Mari from episode 33, which I'm pretty excited about. You can also follow Sick on Twitter and Instagram at a Sick Magazine, and you can find Olivia on Twitter at oliviaspring8, and on Instagram at OLSpring. And of course, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at BennisB, and you can find the show on Instagram at no.n.in.site.pod. I didn't think about what it would be like to say that out loud every episode when I made it, obviously. Uh, I'm I'm still a little bit slow on posts because I'm still behind on transcripts, but that will pick up again once those pick up again, which should be soon. I know I've been saying that for a long time, but... That's the whole reason that I've started this Patreon account. So I'm going to plug that again. It's patreon.com slash noendinsight. Next week, I'll be talking to a woman with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. So make sure you subscribe in your podcast app to find out when new episodes are available. And if you've been enjoying the show, I would be so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners know what to expect from the show. As usual, don't forget that I have a small Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. It's quiet but growing, and you'll even find a few podcast guests in the group. And finally, this podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When I'm up for it, I make simple modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang in your home. I think cross-stitch is a great... A great way, a great way to feel productive during flares if you're standing in front of the television. And I've got a few fall patterns in the shop that are about to be seasonal again. So I'd love it if you checked us out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.